The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your promise that if any of us lacks wisdom, that all we need to do is ask. And so, Lord, as your teacher, I ask uh, for wisdom. And I thank you, Lord, for your word. And I thank you for uh, your servant Solomon. And I pray, God, that you would use uh, this time, this look at his life, to help us investigate our own life and our own walk with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, nice to see you all today. Hope that you have uh, gotten enough French toast. Um, although I'm not sure you can get enough uh, French toast. Or bacon. 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 <laughs> That's what Jim Gaffigan says. They put, uh, in order to make anything taste better, you just wrap it with bacon, right? Bacon-wrapped bacon. That's, that's just so good. Sorry. So, um, next week, next week, uh, chapters 39 and 40 in, uh, in the E100 book. If you would like, I didn't bring them in, but um, I can go get one uh, after the class today. If you uh, would like an E100 book, chapters 39 and 40. Uh, 1 Kings 16, 17, 18, 19, and 25. 1 Kings 16 through 19 and 25. The title of next week's class is Told You So, because uh, it will be about um, the terrible legacy of the kings of Israel, and despite the pleas and the warnings of the prophets. So, told you so. The prophets told them so. The week after that will be December 30th, uh, and we will not have class that day. I will not be here. We're not going to teach. Um, and there's actually not going to be breakfast that day either, uh, which is good news for Beach Diner. And then, um, <laughs> and then in the new year, uh, we will, uh, on January 6th, which is the Epiphany, um, we will, I will interview Elaine Allen, our new executive assistant, so you can get to know her. Uh, or know her again. Uh, she was a longtime parishioner and then um, left for a little while and she actually spent some time in Tucson and then came back and I'll tell you that she is amazing. I just, just can't say enough good things about her. So I look forward to getting to, uh, for you getting to know her and then we'll resume the class on um, E100 class on January 13th with the Psalms in a nutshell. I don't know that you can teach the Psalms in 40 minutes but I'm going to do my best. So... <laughs> Well, so the, for the last two weeks, we looked at uh, the life of King David, just a, a luminary among all uh, biblical figures, really. Um, I mean, uh, in, in a class uh, below Jesus, obviously, but with, I would say, um, Moses, Abraham, St. Paul, kind of right, right in that, uh, that echelon. And yet, what is so interesting about David, we saw the victory over Goliath, we saw God's amazingly gracious and just over-the-top extraordinary covenant with David. And then his sin with, last week we just looked exclusively at the sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. We saw a faithful man doing a very faithless thing. We really uh, explored that. And... um, and so as you may, today we're talking about King Solomon. So the title of today's class is cleverly titled uh, King Solomon. And um, he's very catchy. I know, very catchy. And uh, you can imagine that David had many wives and so therefore he had many sons. 
And if, um, if you were to read sort of where we t- left off in Samuel and then up into uh, 1 Kings, what you'd see is that, that David is uh, aging. Uh, he's nearing his death. He's quite sure of that. And his eldest living son, Adonijah, sets himself up as the king. Now, Adonijah, I think, was the fourth oldest son. Um, just terrible dysfunction, really stemming from uh, Bathsheba and that whole that sin. And then um, what we uh, we saw, David, uh, God's promise to David after the sin was, um, your sin will be put away from you and you will not die, but the sword will never depart from your house. And almost immediately, um, we see... Uh, Amnon rape Tamar, his half-sister, and then Absalom, who is Tamar's full brother, same mother, uh, kill Amnon in retribution. It takes a few years for that to unfold. Uh, But it's just terrible dysfunction in David's family. The second son, so Amnon was the oldest, Absalom was the third. The second son, Chilea, must have died, scholars think, because he's only mentioned once, but Adonijah, fourth son of David, sets himself up as king. Now he is not—he um, is not the the one, the son, as you know, that uh, God has said will be the next king to succeed David. Uh, Solomon is the chosen son. God has spoken to David. Um, as far as I can tell, uh, Solomon's the youngest son, which should we should recall that David was also the youngest son. Again, one more instance of God not choosing the one you would think, but choosing um, uh, His own choice, looking at the heart or whatever. But, but Solomon is the son of scandal. Now, he was, not the, he was not the son with whom Bathsheba became pregnant in the affair. Remember, that son died. Um, but she, she came in to the house. She became his wife, David's wife, and she had Solomon. Interestingly, if you look at Matthew's genealogy, if you look in, in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is laying out the genealogy of Jesus. Um, Luke also gives a genealogy, and there's a lot of dis- disparity between Matthew's and Luke's from David to Jesus. And scholars go back and forth as to why that is. Uh, is one the royal line and, uh, and one Joseph's line? Is one Joseph's line and one Mary's line? And and there's not a lot of consensus on that. Lots and lots of speculation. Uh, But actually, if you see, if you look in uh, Matthew's genealogy, uh, you have a whole lot of uh, surly characters uh, in there. But one of them is is very interesting, and that is that um, where it says David, or Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by, doesn't say Bathsheba, by the wife of Uriah. So even yeah, so even there, she's not named uh, in order to further antagonize or um, uh, indict, I guess, David. Uh, and interestingly, though, if you look back through, you've got uh, Rahab, you've got um, you've just got several of these really crazy characters in here, and um, including uh, Isaac and Jacob, and uh, it's. What hope for all of us? You know, what grace that even you would think that Jesus came from the purest and most royal, uh, beloved, faithful line. Actually, no. There's just all sorts of dysfunction 
uh, in Jesus' human line dating back, again, for us, that says a lot about uh, the kind of people God uses, which, at least for me, I find a lot of hope uh, in that. If you don't find hope in that, well, you need a therapist. Um, the, um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, that's not nice. So Adonijah sets himself up as king. He gets a whole lot of folks coming around. They throw a big banquet. And uh, even Joab, David's general, is there saying that Adonijah should be the king because he's the oldest living son. The prophet Nathan goes to Bathsheba and says, you got to go to David and then you tell him what's happening and then I'm going to come after and tell him what's happening and David's going to solve this thing um, because Solomon needs to be the king. And David gives Solomon, David finds out, David again is very old and he gives Solomon his mule, which sounds like, thanks a lot, Dad. Give me your mule. But actually that was the symbol of his kingship and he rides through town and Adonijah is having this big party and everybody goes, what is that noise? And all of uh, Jerusalem is outside going, long live King Solomon. Now, uh, Adonijah sees the mule and says, my life is over, essentially. And Solomon initially has, gives him grace and says, you shall live. But then um, Adonijah asks for uh, a particular woman as his wife. And you can read that story if you want uh, in First Kings. And that is enough. I mean, it's just, just very little. That is enough for Solomon to say, uh, well, you deserve to die. So he kills his brother. Um, it's very medieval, and I know this medieval period was years and years, but it's the same kind of stuff, uh, centuries after all this, but it was, uh, it was uh, the same kind of just ruthless, reckless, uh, bloody reality. And King Solomon, what we see is after David dies and Solomon does establish his kingdom, he does so by the sword, by killing his opponents in the family and outside the family, um, including Joab, uh, whom David actually, right at the beginning, uh, David said, well, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So let me read for you uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1 and, and following. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, meaning I'm old as dirt and I'm about to become part of it. And be strong. And show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways, and keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you will not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Obedience to God is to be the key to the king's success. God has made a covenant with David, and it is an if-then statement. If you follow my ways, then you will prosper. If your sons follow my ways, then they will prosper and you will not lack a man on the throne. So David now is doing what he ought to do as a good Jewish father. He's instructing his son in the covenant. He is telling him that he should continue uh, in the way of obedience. So my question for you is, what is the place of obedience 
in the Christian life. What is the place of obedience in the Christian life? Because, you know, some would say that that is the Christian life. That's, I mean, it's, uh, Christianity is, is a moral code. I, ha- I think I've told the story before that I, I had someone who was um, Jewish get very upset with me and said, I'm a better Christian than all the Christians I know. And what she meant was, I'm nicer. She wouldn't be nicer than me, but she, um, she, she was... Um, I, I, did, I failed to point that out to her in a way that was um, convincing. But um, it was... Um, so, my, my question then... So, I mean, I, I'm speaking to you, hoping and assuming that you know that, that obedience isn't what makes you a Christian... So what, what is the place of obedience in the Christian life? Connie? I think it's an act of gratitude for what has been given to us. An act of gratitude for what has been given to us. So, yes, I would agree. It's part of our love for God. Part of our love for God. Gratitude, love for God. Right. Loving God, loving your neighbor. Love God. And put it in your life. Yeah, put it in your life. Love God, love your neighbor. Yeah. Darla? Oh, Jesus talked about obedience to his house on the rock yes. as opposed to the sand. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did say, not all those who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do what I say. Right. And why do you say, Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree that when we receive grace, uh, Jesus said of a woman who was washing his feet with her tears mm-hmm. who's been forgiven much, loves much. Right. And when we've been forgiven so much, the heart response to that is obedience. Yes. 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 Yeah, so let me tell you what she said, uh, if you couldn't hear. She said that Jesus said, she referenced the Sermon on the Mount, whoever uh, obeys my word builds their house on the rock, and whoever does not uh, obey my word is a, builds their house on the sand. In other words, uh, obedience is, is a premium. Not everybody who um, calls me Lord, Lord is doing what I say. And, and so Jesus does put a premium, and yet she also referenced the um, woman washing Jesus' feet with her tears. Whoever uh, has been forgiven much loves much. And so essentially what Darla is saying is that our obedience is a response to the grace of of God, not a precursor to it. Yes, Paul. Obedience is serving. See, serving, a servanthood. Yes, obedience is serving. So, what is very important for us to hear is that part of the new covenant is that Jesus has been obedient for us, right? When God looks at your report card, if you have faith in Christ, then He sees Jesus's score, right? That's pretty amazing. Because you know what your report card looks like. But it is the obedience of the king that determines the blessing upon the people. And that's what the covenant to David said. It is the obedience of the king that determines the blessing, the favor of God upon the people, Israel. And you and I have a king who has been perfectly obedient, and therefore we, who are his people, his subjects, uh, as Christians, that we have God's full and undivided favor upon us. And now our obedience uh, is a response. 
And so, uh, so that is, so we don't hear that and think, well, God will only bless me if I behave. But that law drives us. We think, oh my gosh, this is the standard of God. Drives us, and even like the Sermon on the Mount drives us to say, I need a Savior. I need a, I cannot, I have, I have already fallen short, and I don't know how much longer I'm going to live, but I need a Savior. Because I'm not going to get there. And we have a Savior. That's, that's the so the very next thing, it's interesting, David tells Solomon, walk in the ways of God. And the very next thing, I mean, the very next breath, he's not even done with the speech, kill Joab and, um, and uh, this other hit list of, of grudges that David is holding. It's, very, it's, um, it's, it's really a, a very weird contrast. Uh, I think it is possible that these were calculated political moves. Um, in other words, David knows that they're going to give Solomon problems in order to establish his throne. Uh, David frames it as um, punishment, like for Joab, that Joab did what he was not supposed to do. Uh, he killed a couple of people who were innocent, and therefore to uh, rid the house of Solomon of that blood guilt, uh, he should kill Joab. And yet David didn't kill Joab. He was still useful to David. Again, it's just a, it's a strange thing. Again, co- David is a complex uh, man. And again, it just seems very medieval. So Solomon begins to excise his opponents, uh, including Adonijah, uh, Shemai and Joab and chapter 2 ends saying the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon chapter 3 opens up and there is a marriage alliance with Pharaoh's daughter now Pharaoh probably wasn't a good faithful Jew and, uh, and this again is just, just the, um, the, the very um, beginnings again of the sort of cracks in the foundation and, um, and you see the same sense, in a sense, being repeated. But the author doesn't make a, lot, a big deal about it. He just kind of mentions it in a cursory way. Um, but I, nonchalant, but dubious, I think. Um, and, and so it's a, it's a political alliance that he makes. And, um, and again, we see that David and Solomon, just like you and me, are um, faithful, complex, faithful and, and sinful and um, complex. So, um, and yet, despite the cracks that are beginning to show in the even now, the very beginning in the foundation, and this, we're we're already years into Sol- several years, three or four or five years into Solomon's reign as king, and we see this incredible kindness and grace uh, to Solomon. Again, all through as we go through the Old Testament, I want to. I mean, we do see some things where, like, I don't know why God seems so angry, but we, we want to see the character of God, that He is angry at sin. He continues to judge sin. We're grateful because we have a Savior, but He's also gracious and kind and loving. It's the same God. And we see this incredible grace to Solomon. So He appears to him in a dream. So I want to just... Solomon, love the Lord. This is uh, chapter 3, uh, beginning with verse 3. Solomon, love the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father... Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Just a little, he didn't quite do it just like he ought to do. More, a couple more cracks in the foundation. And the king went to Gibeon uh, to sacrifice there, uh, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. I mean, so, I mean, Solomon was greater 
even at this point, I think, greater in wealth and greater in uh, his reign than his father was. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, it's like a vision. I mean, it's actually happening, but it's a dream. I had a dream last night. Mr. Rogers was in it. It was, it was, that was not as profound. It, was in, it had, had to do with the Great Hall, actually. It was very strange. <laughs> At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. Have you ever played that game? Like I, we, I have this conversation with my kids sometimes, like, especially when the lottery gets really high. Like when, a few months ago, $1.6 billion lottery. You ever play that game? Like, what would you do with $1.6 billion? What, is, what would you play with, do with a million dollars? That's a much different game than what would you do with $10 million or $1.6 billion. A million dollars, you know, you pay off the house and you just save it for kids' college or whatever. But the, the, um, it was just fun to kind of, because my kids, it's all the same. You know, it's all the same to them. A million dollars, $1.6 billion. I'm just, you know, I'm going to get a drone um, is what they say. Um, <laughs> um, and a piece, a gaming PC. Um, <laughs> me too, actually, if you win that. Um, so what, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you, except for that thing with my mom. Um, and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. And now, now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I'm, I'm but a little child. Now, I actually don't know how old Solomon is at this point. He's probably in his early 20s. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? Just give me wisdom. That's a pretty remarkable thing. A skeptic would say, well, it's pretty easy to just ask for wisdom because he already has tons of wives and money and you know, land. And, but verse 10 says, It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said, Because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding and to discern what is right, behold, I do now according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, he's so gracious, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, and then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. But honestly, I mean, the guy was just unparalleled in his wisdom. And it was uh, remarkable, uh, the things that he was able to do. I mean, we have, uh, he probably wrote, I, I'd have to look and see the, uh, the amount of Scripture that Solomon wrote versus the amount of Scripture his, his father wrote. 
but the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, whether he wrote that or wrote, written about him is unclear. But um, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt, which is exactly the promised land that God said your people will have. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and the breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people to the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, a few other folks, um, but especially Ethan. Uh, His fame was uh, all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 1,005 songs. It's pretty specific. And he spoke about trees. He spoke about hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke about the beasts and the birds. So he was a naturalist. He was just, he was just wise. James chapter 1 in the New Testament, James chapter 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So, another question for you. What does it look like for you to ask God for wisdom? Or maybe a better, wait, what does it look like for God to give you wisdom? Because I can tell you, I've asked for wisdom a lot, this, this year particularly. Uh, I just need, I've asked people, when people say, how can I pray for you? Wisdom. Wisdom. And it yet, has yet to feel like a download of wisdom. <laughs> like, oh, now I know what to do. <laughs> right? um, what does it look like for you when you pray for wisdom? Do you think, thanks a lot. I'm going to go watch Netflix. What do you, what do you, uh, what does it look like? Yes, Katie. Well, I usually pray, may your words be my words and your thoughts my thoughts before I write anything or, or if I'm in a study before I speak anything. And um, I also add to that, and if it is me, let me stop talking and writing. Let me stop talking. That usually is wisdom for me. Um, although I, I implore my children with that bit of wisdom as well. Um, I mean, like, what else? Anybody else want to weigh in on that? Doesn't it, it involve a responsibility if you're given that kind of a gift? Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, with you know, like in the words of the prophet Spider-Man, you know, much is given, much is expected. So. With, no, that, that's actually the Bible. The, um, the, um, what, is it, what is it, Josh? Great power becomes great responsibility. Yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. I knew that Josh would know that. Yeah. How do you define wisdom? Well, okay, good, good question. How do you define wisdom? I know, I know how I define it, but go ahead, Josh. Um, I just think to the, without actually saying, you're saying the, the Lord's Prayer, we're getting the exact words, but where it says, uh, you know, um, not my will, but your will be done. You know, asking for, you know, that would be to me the way to do is, is what God wants to do, mm-hmm. not what you want. Yes. Not my will, but that will be done. But what is it? What is wisdom? I, my, I think the best definition that I know of for wisdom is rightly applied knowledge. So you can know a lot of things, but to actually take that knowledge and apply it correctly in a way that is beneficial to you and to others. That's wisdom, I think. 
for me, like I said, it does not feel like a light bulb goes off. Sudden understanding. It feels a lot more, similar to how Katie was describing, a lot more like faith. Like, I've prayed for wisdom. I'm just going to do the best I can and trust that God is in it. It feels a lot, praying for wisdom feels a lot like Romans 8.28. All things work to the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. That if I screw this up, God's going to somehow make that okay. And I'm just praying, God, it looks like this door is open, so I'm going to walk through it. So wisdom, again, doesn't so much look like a um, sudden burst of knowledge. It looks like courage and faith. For me. You may be a lot wiser and smarter than I am. but I like your definition where it's not knowledge, it's the application of yeah. knowledge. Mm-hmm. Because I think you can have wisdom without God. If you're a scientist and you're putting something together, you can have knowledge and put it together so it doesn't blow up. But we're talking here is the spirituality of wisdom. Yeah, there's a difference between knowing how to create a nuclear bomb and knowing when to use it. Correct. Or not use it. Absolutely. The weather to create it. Well, well, okay, fair enough. But just just as sort of a stark stark example. Um, yeah, so so what happens then after after um, 1 Kings 3 is that Solomon begins to construct the magnificent temple of Solomon. And I encourage you to go and read... Um, 1 Kings 5, 6, 7, uh, where he's putting together the construction, the description of it. It's a, it's a little detailed. You engineers will love it. Uh, it's a little detailed, but but it is, uh, I mean, there's just, it, they use the finest materials. Uh, it's, it's, it, there's just gold everywhere. And I it must have been one of the wonders of the ancient world. I've heard it said by an architect friend of mine, uh, that we actually don't possess the technology to build the t- the uh, pyramids right now as they were built. Like there's just we could not do it, which is pretty remarkable. They didn't have cranes back then. They had slaves with ropes. And so um, the um, so I don't. It, he did use forced labor, um, but it was it was just it would have been one of the the. Um, just the, the mag- most magnificent things these people had ever seen or imagined. Giant, um, uh, I guess like seraphim, I can't remember the, the exact word, over the, over the Ark of the Covenant and, the, and these incredible uh, ornate decorations all around. It took 11 years for them to build uh, the temple, four years just to put the foundation in place. All along the way, though, he's also, because there's such great wealth and peace and people are bringing tribute from all over the place, there's tons and tons and tons of money in Israel at this point, he's also building himself a palace complex. And the author nonchalantly mentions that it took 11 years to build the temple, but 13 to build his palace. <laughs> Maybe that's because the hired help was just, was, they were all focusing on the temple. I, I, I'm not... <laughs> just, just. Daddy's house wasn't big enough? I mean, come on. Hmm. As soon as Solomon had finished... Okay, so we get to chapter 9, and this is where we have the dedication. 
Well, actually, no, sorry. All of chapter 8 is this remarkable prayer. And I'm not, I'm not going to go through uh, all of it. Uh, but it's just this remarkable prayer of, of dedication. And um, where Solomon is dedicating the temple. And he's asking God, it's really, if there's famine in the land, um, if there's pestilence or blight, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by man or by all your people, uh, then here in heaven um, your dwelling place and forgive the act which caused it and render to each whose heart you know. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not... So it just goes on and on through all these different uh, scenarios. When we're in battle and we're losing, we cry out, do you hear our prayer over and over again? This is a really magnificent prayer of dedication. He's up at the top of the temple, arms stretched out. All of Israel is behind him uh, watching this, uh, this amazing... Um, once-in-a-lifetime thing. And afterwards, they hold this incredible banquet. He says they sacrificed so many animals that they were just completely without number. And, um, and they had this amazing party. And as soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as He had appeared to him at Gibeon. So like a trance, a vision, a dream. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. I mean, look at today. I mean, it's still, it's still I mean, it's, it's half Muslim in the Wailing Wall, and I've never been there. I hope to go uh, sometime. But um, it is still a very holy and controversial site, that place. I put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then, if, then, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, on down the line, which they will do in the first generation. Incidentally, Solomon is the one who said, if you raise up a child in the way they should go, when they are old, they will not depart from it. And his kid was a disaster. (laughs) I take a lot of comfort in that. My kids are great. I don't mean they're disasters. I'm just saying that God is God's responsibility. Joe, the key is when they are old. Right. Old. Old. Not older. Old. Right. Yeah. Old. Like he. I mean. uh, (laughs) Sounded funny in my head. It wasn't funny. Um, (laughs) Let's get back to Solomon. Let's get back to Solomon. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name, and I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the peoples. That happened, y'all. And we're going to see about it next week. His house will become a heap of ruins. 
And it did. Because they left the Lord. And this promise becomes a byword over His lineage. And it is not until... I mean, there are a couple of faithful kings along the way, Josiah uh, being maybe the most prominent. But it, politically, I mean, the tribes just kind of disperse. There's no distinct tribes anymore of Israel and uh, over time. And they get carted off to Babylon and they come back and they build this temple, but it looks kind of like a shack compared to Granddaddy Solomon's temple. And it just, the people are discouraged and then there's nothing for 400 years until, <clears throat> until God puts the final one on the throne, which is Jesus. So that's Solomon. It's not all of Solomon because we... we E100 in this it doesn't get to uh, the relationships that kind of really led to the downfall. But Solomon's heart wanders later in life. And God is good to his promises. Uh, he's not, Solomon's not faithful, so God says, I'm going to hand you over to what you're pursuing. Incidentally, sometimes when you get what you want, that's judgment. So, questions, comments? Oh, yes, darling. I, I was just thinking, we're talking about when you were old, you know, when the, the child is yes. old. Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes when he's an old man and someone who's been given great wealth. And he talks about how he didn't withhold anything from himself. He did whatever he wanted, good things, bad things, sinful things, great things. Um, and all of it was just meaningless. Mm-hmm. And um, vanity, 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 mm-hmm. and and strangely, in the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter mm-hmm. thirty, after God gives him all that wealth, his prayer is, "Lord, give me neither poverty nor wealth," mm-hmm. which is my favorite prayer mm-hmm. you know, for for myself. Um, and, and because if, if I if I'm in poverty, I might steal and take the name of my Lord in vain. Mm-hmm. If I'm wealthy, I might say, "Who is the Lord?" Mm. and be prideful. Yeah, and and leave the Lord. So you know, it, it's, God gave, gave him all that wealth, but at the, at, at the end of the day, he didn't really want it anymore. Right. Yeah, he didn't want his wealth. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, you're right. You're right. He, he um, and, and there, you know, of course, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, different opinions about Ecclesiastes, particularly. But I think you're, uh, I think you're right uh, in 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 any sense that that Solomon's life is a legacy of of the importance of steadfast faithfulness to God above all else. Mm-hmm. Anything else? And I think it's Connie. remarkable when God was blessing Solomon, he continued to talk about David as being faithful to him. Well, and David was mm. it, which is comforting to me because I want to be, but I'm not. And yeah. But yet God considers me faithful too. And that that's profound. I if, if, he, if you couldn't hear what Connie was saying, she said she takes a lot of comfort in seeing how God still refers to David as faithful even though he wasn't. That's, I think that's because 
his actions were human, but his return was always to God. Now, David, yeah, unlike Saul before him, David did always repent and turn back to God. He wasn't, he wasn't a man after God's own heart in the sense that his heart was just like God's. He was a man after God's heart in the sense that he was always pursuing it. So, which most of us do. Which most of us do. David, By grace. David that, chased God. Yes, he did. Folks, it's time to go to church or to go home. God bless you all. See you Friday night at the Live Nativity.